listening to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 55. This week, Anthony and Chris take a look at the difference between gaming and cheating, as well as the games Sutaku and Paperback. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And welcome to the episode, everybody. Episode 55. Double fives. Double fives. Come on, come on, fives. All right. It feels like that should be a special number, but it's it's just five more than 50. <laughs> It's always so weird how there's just certain numbers. If it has a zero at the end, it's special, and any other number, not so much. But I got to tell you, if you're rolling a D6, a five is not a bad thing to roll. Yeah, I'm cool with it. 55. It's five times 11. <laughs> Episode 11 was great. What was 11? Yeah. Suburbia? That was a good game. Suburbia's a great game. Love Suburbia. <laughs> now, if you can play that five times... <laughs> You're set because you know Suburbia is, is definitely a game you want to play at least five times. So at least, yeah, the first time doesn't count. The second time you might have a little bit of fun. You're definitely still going to lose. <laughs> uh, the third time probably good. Fourth time amazing. So and the fifth time you're just like, yeah, suburbia. now I know Suburbia. All right, so that is the start to this podcast is where we ramble <laughs> incoherently about past episodes. Uh, just the two of us this week. Uh, Drew just went on a cross-country tour of the Northeast. Uh, he, you know, hopefully he's settling in up north, but I know he's he had a big move this last week, so we wish him well. He's up there with the Yetis right now, so... Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and he's probably playing Suburbia. <laughs> I Well, that... Come on, Drew. I'm trying to play that before here. <laughs> Uh, and Daniel should be back very, very soon. I know that he is currently in the tri-state area. Sure. He's out there somewhere. He may be listening so. at this moment. So. <laughs> Playing suburbia, too, because clearly everyone is. What is happening? <laughs> Welcome to the We Love Suburbia episode, episode 55, Suburbia, Suburbia, Suburbia. Yeah, unless you played Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and apparently that's better. So Yeah. <laughs> But we'll uh, get to that at another podcast. So, but uh, hopefully we'll have both Drew and Daniel back. You know, any episode now. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't picked up on it yet, um, <laughs> the last couple months have been a little bit of upheaval in the BGA crew, but we've kept it going just for you. Um, I had a baby. I was gone for a few weeks. Uh, Drew, Drew is moving. He's been in and out uh, for the last few weeks. Daniel was visiting family. And between classes, so he's been, you know, traveling all over the place. Uh, Chris has been a rock, dude. You're getting it done. I've been the suburbia of this podcast. (laughs) Gotta have a suburbia. Uh, I've been the Mad King Ludwig. (laughs) (laughs) That explains so much. (laughs) It does. It, It oddly does. But we are excited because 2015 is in full gear. We are all kind of settling down into... You know where we hope to be for the rest of the year, and um, you know it's going to be an awesome year for us. It's been an awesome year already, just the last few weeks, and hopefully we have everybody back very, very soon. 
But to that end, we did want to start off with, we talked last week a little bit about this, and we actually recorded it before we launched it, so we hadn't given you kind of the rundown of what it would entail, but our Patreon campaign is live now, so if you have not seen it yet, you can go to patreon.com slash BGA, and you will see kind of just a rundown of what we're doing and what we're asking for. And, you know, just real quick, because we did talk about this last week, kind of wanted to go through what Patreon is, what we're doing, what the purpose and goal of this campaign is. Uh, Basically, Patreon is, it's a chance for you as a listener, as a member of, you know, this podcast community to kind of give back and to be part of what we do. It's it's crowdfunding, um, but it's not its not like Kickstarter where we run like a 30-day campaign and set a specific goal. Uh, it's more of an ongoing thing where you can back us per episode. So, you know, if whether it's a dollar or two or three or four dollars, you can, you know, kind of help us out on a per episode basis. And the reason we put this up is we have a lot of awesome ideas. There's a lot of cool stuff we want to do. We have a very quickly growing audience out there that we know is, you know, we're having a lot of fun with it and we know you're having fun. So we wanted to put this out there and give you a chance to kind of get involved and to, you know, put your voice into what we're doing. And hopefully, you know, if you're able to support us and kind of help us get the equipment and uh, resources we need to do all the awesome stuff we have in, in the works. Yeah, part of what we want to do is expand. So you're listening you're connecting. We love that. But we just want to have more of that interaction. So the Patreon account will allow us to provide surveys so we can get to hear from you. If there's something that you want to hear more about, like Suburbia, you would be able to tell us there. Or if you'd like us to do videos, then we would get the money in order to get the equipment to be able to do those things. And especially the conventions. We want to meet everybody out there and get to sit down, play games with you. So this will allow for that, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so much cool stuff. And, you know, we've never had ads. Um, if you've listened to us for any period of time, you know there's never been a single ad on our show. And part of that is, you know, we enjoy what we do. This is kind of a hobby for us. And it's been a labor of love for the last year and a half. So we didn't want to turn it into this big commercial venture um, by running a ton of ads to fund what we're doing. But it does cost a little bit of money to run a podcast. So going to conventions, buying equipment for videos, doing contests where we send out games, um, you know, that all that stuff is a little bit more than what we're already doing. And it's stuff we really want to do, but it's it becomes something that we need, you know, we, we kind of want to reach out to you and just bring the community together to make these things possible. Lots of cool stuff on here. Um, you'll see goal-wise, we have some contests we want to run. Every couple months, we have some video content we're going to work on. Chris has some awesome ideas in the on the broiler that we are going to get out if we reach that goal. In terms of some of the backing levels, uh, you know, get your name heard on the podcast. Uh, like Chris said, get involved with our polls. Nominate and vote on upcoming features or reviews. So, you know, if you back at that level, you'll basically be added to a mailing list that's only for backers. That basically, you get your voice heard among a much smaller pool of listeners. Um, on what we're going to be talking about every week. Uh, Google Hangouts, that's something we're going to start doing very soon, every month. So you can kind of join us when we talk about what we're going to be covering and what we've been covering and you know where we're going. Um, or even joining us on the show or at a convention and gaming with us. 
this is some of the stuff that we think would be fun to kind of get everybody involved, but also just a chance for us to give back and for everybody to get involved. We really appreciate you listening in general. That's that's what this is all about, is kind of bringing everybody together and building a community of gamers. That's what we set out to do. It's what we continue to want to do, and it's been a lot of fun. It's going to continue to be a lot of fun. 2015 should be an awesome year. We'll leave it at that. Um, we'll kind of dive into the next step here and cover some of the news that's been coming out lately. Shout it from the tabletops! <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. All right, shout it from the tabletop. I'm, uh, well, I'm no Drew, but, uh, the, the <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere on a mountain far off in the wilderness, a man with a grand white beard stands on a mountain with a big horn, and he's blasting the board game news. And it's really confusing everybody else because they don't know why he's doing that. But now he's there, <laughs> so he'll be doing that all the time. Yeah, there's a, there's a special white van going up that mountaintop right now. <laughs> So we uh, now we really need the Patreon money to be able to bail Drew, Drew out from jail. <laughs> oh, man. So Drew's moving. He sent over his notes for Shout It From The Tabletop this week. Oh, boy. And while I have not done the extensive research that Drew does every week, um, seriously, Drew is amazing at this. Uh, I will run you through everything that I have, have read and... Mm-hmm. Uh, have some insights into for this week's Shatter from the Tabletop segment. At the top of the list, and you probably noticed this if you're planning on going to Gen Con this year, is some of the revised registration and housing rules for the show this year. What they wanted to do is make the housing situation less chaos and make it more of a situation where people could reserve rooms and get what they need based on... Um, opportunity rather than just whoever happens to be online at 2 a.m. whenever the thing goes on sale. Um, So basically, once you have purchased your badges, you are entered into a queue randomly and then given access to the housing portal one at a time. So it doesn't crash, but also you get the opportunity to kind of dive in there with about a one or two hour window um, instead of like the minute and a half you used to have, where if you didn't click fast enough or if your internet connection was cruddy enough you wouldn't get in there um and the goal is to just obviously it makes it so you know some people are gonna be left out but that was always the case and now it's just kind of democratizing it a little bit to make it so um they can kind of balance out the rising demand for rooms uh Mm. because there's so many people they still are not capping the number of participants and um visitors to the show itself But the rooms are obviously capped because there's only so many hotels in Indianapolis. Um, (laughs) Unless you have a good Airbnb hookup or you're staying 30 minutes outside the city, you know, you're going to run out of rooms pretty fast in the city. Uh, I know we're planning on going this year. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to (laughs) do. Passes shouldn't be a problem, but we're still figuring out the housing situation. Uh, But this situation, you know, the way it's set up now, I don't think it hurts anybody necessarily as long as you're aware it's the case. It's uh, hopefully to keep everything kind of organized and to the point. It opens on the 25th, so probably the day or day before this podcast comes out. That will have already have happened, so you may have already been waiting in that queue. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I think it was actually one of Drew's predictions, which is, the conventions are just getting so big that something has to change. And that's a, I mean, it's a great thing because 
gaming is just getting bigger and bigger, but it's a challenging thing because these conventions are becoming so overwhelmingly large that they're almost, you know, hurting themselves by that, that large number. Yeah, it's a little crazy. I mean, most of the really big popular conventions cap their attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to PAX East last year and it sold out in, what, 24 hours? Less than 24 hours. There's only so many tickets to the show itself. So the hotel rooms around the city aren't going to sell out because only so many people can go to PAX East. Gen Con doesn't have that limit. I mean, whatever limit they do have, there might be some theoretical fire safety limit somewhere in there. <laughs> but uh, the show will sell tickets to whoever is able to go. But that means you have like 50,000 people going and there are only so many hotels in Indianapolis. It's not New York. It's not Boston. Um, and that means, you know, they have to lottery these things off. It becomes tough. Uh, getting sure. tickets to the show, not tough. Getting a place to stay while you're there, very, 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 very tough. Yeah, of course. So that's what they're doing this year. Um, obviously, things are changing. We'll see what happens next year and how many people show up this year. Uh, and hopefully we find a place or a couch or a hovel to sleep in <laughs> for those three, four, four, five days. We'll just we'll take all our board games and we'll just build up a little, like, uh, fort out of uh, cardboard. Yeah, right. <laughs> It'll be a car game board thing. <laughs> so if you if you if you come to Gen Con and for some reason in the middle of nowhere there's a huge you know wall of games, we're living in there for the convention time. That's actually a great idea. That sounds like some <laughs> solid guerrilla marketing right there. This is what I'm saying, you know? Just brand that. You can work with the uh, Cards Against Humanity guys. Not bad. Not be bad. in the uh, parking lot across from the convention center. all right so another piece of news here that drew sent our way is the computer that solved poker uh if you haven't seen this yet there was a article in science magazine about a computer that was able to basically solve texas hold'em poker by teaching it game theory it was able to more or less win I, i forgot the percentage but some ridiculous percentage of games against human opponents it didn't quite get the news coverage of IBM's machine beating, you know, the world chess champion. But, you know, in 2015, people kind of assume computers are smarter than us. So <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't quite the same level. It's an interesting idea because, A, uh, whenever this happens, you know, the machine that was built is going to be used for something else. You know, IBM's Watson was on Jeopardy, but then it went on to basically become this super-powered medical computer that does like a billion things. Um <laughs> The the whole idea of it is it's to show what it's capable of and then kind of build from there to the next level. Sure. But what other games do you think you know computers would be able to solve? What games are solvable? Mm. Is, is is a good question. Um, you know, I I still doubt the you know legitimacy of this. I mean, Texas Hold'em is so much about playing the player. Now there is mathematics, and some of the best you know poker players of all time are mathematicians. So I understand the fact that you can, by, you know, seeing the cards that are available, you know, come up with a mathematical probability, what you should do in that situation. And I've watched way too much Texas Hold'em shows to know that if you're holding these cards, it's a 44% chance that you will win and how to play them. But I don't know. I mean, human players don't play by the rules always. And and I think that's going to throw a computer, whereas chess, you know... You can play chess, and then at some point, very early on, and especially with computers, 
know whether or not you can win at all. Like, you know, oh, well, I'll win in 12 moves. Like, there's nothing else you can do. You can't get around that. But with poker, you can bluff. You can go all in. You can change, you know, gears on those things. So I guess if it's an abstract game and if it's an equally balanced game and there's no luck included and there's no dice rolling in there, you know, I think we still have a chance. But I think there are some games that we've played in the past that, it seems like there's a set strategy and there's some number crunching and you can figure it out. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's an interesting like progression here. You know, um, this article in science magazine talks about how children can figure out how to beat tic-tac-toe. Yeah. Um, and then a few years ago, scientists solved checkers. Uh, they found the algorithm where they could beat a human opponent every single time at checkers. Um, Poker is different, and it's only this one variation. It's heads-up limit Texas Hold'em. But what it says is it's not going to beat the human opponent every single hand um, mm. because of the luck of the draw and because sure. of the hidden information aspect, but that over the course of you know multiple hands, the computer will always edge them out. Of course. Um, they could play 60 million hands. This is what the article says. 60 million hands, and the computer is still going to come out ahead crazy because it's the algorithm that they built here so it's it's kind of this progression of algorithms you know tic-tac-toe to checkers to poker you know mm. what's next are we solving you know something significantly more complicated um it's interesting to see so well if war games told us anything it told us that uh, the only way to, to win is not to play at all right yeah <laughs> so don't play computers play people and you're fine <laughs> exactly otherwise nuclear war Exactly. That's what I take away from this article. <laughs> Nuclear so if computer, war. If the computer asks you, shall we play a game? You say no. You just say no, and you just walk away. All right. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, most uh, app games that are board games are actually pretty awful as far as the AI is concerned. So I wouldn't mind a challenge, but yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. It kind of needs a solid uh, single-player mode, or at least yes. some consistency, you know? Um, it's right. no suburbia. That's all I have to say. <laughs> well, suburbia has got a single player mode, so it's okay. Yes, there you go. Challenge mode, and it's hard as heck. It is. So that is everything this week from the uh, shadow from the tabletop segment. All the news. Um, hopefully, next week Drew is back and can kind of delve deeper into all the various articles and bits and pieces he finds all over the web. Next up, we're going to take a look at our acquisition disorders for this week. And now. Our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy. Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much, but maybe, I don't know, maybe you might need the expansion. All right. So acquisition disorders for this week. Uh, lots of interesting things on the horizon. The first thing on my list is it's not so much a game that I'm excited for uh, because I didn't know it existed before yesterday. It's it's more of a curiosity. Um, and this is something that hit Kickstarter, I want to say, it might have been even last week, but right now it's sitting at about three and a half million, I think. <laughs> so uh, this guy's making a ton of money. And that's Exploding Kittens. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a card game from the guy who does the oatmeal. And it's it's literally, it's Russian roulette with a couple twists in it. So it's not literally Russian roulette. But 
the idea of it is it's you're drawing cards back and forth and one of you is going to get the exploding kittens and then you lose but some of the cards will let you look ahead and see what the next cards are some of them will let you play with the other you know mess with the other player um it sounds like it could be either horrible or slightly entertaining party game <laughs> the I don't so think the, it's so hold on a second. So the range is from horrible to slightly entertaining. <laughs> yes, yes. Not, not saying much there. <laughs> the reason it's on my acquisition disorder list is it's, it's You don't like kittens? It's the oatmeal. So it's it's funny stuff and I don't like cats. Um <laughs> Well there goes half our listener base. <laughs> hey, I don't want the cats to explode, but I don't like them. <laughs> Aren't Go you to, a vegetarian, man? What's I don't want them here? to explode. I have a cat. It's fine. <laughs> How he, long at this rate? I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've had the cat for three years. Almost totally four. on you now there. I, hey, I have Has a your cat. cat ever exploded? No. All right. No, he's still alive. Um, <laughs> okay there. <laughs> we brought him with us when All we right. moved. Unexploded. Unexploded. All right, good. Exploding kittens. So... <laughs> So the theme, uh, the theme seems non-existent. So like the name is just a joke, obviously. But you know, if you've read the oatmeal, you know that he's a dog guy. He makes jokes about cats. I'm sure he loves cats too. He's an ex-vet tech. So cats are fine, but they're crazy. They're cats. Um, sure. The the game itself is a relatively simple party game, but the amount of money this is raised in the course of like a week is ridiculous. Yes, it is. That alone makes me interested to see. A, what comes out of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, B, what's in that not safe for work deck at the thirty-five dollar <laughs> level? Um, it seems like a joke, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> and then C, is this possibly a decent game? I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of these strange, you know, crossovers, kind of, you know, that the internet has spawned where people love cats. And it's a Kickstarter, so okay. Why not, I guess? Or, or people hate cats. <laughs> and it's the oatmeal. And he has 100,000 backers. That's just, it's mind-blowing to me. I don't understand how he's reached this level. Um, this might become the highest-backed game of all time, and it's not even a real game. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm being almost a troll here to Kicking the Habit, but it's just, I want to see what comes out of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, these, these games typically concern me. Uh, I haven't gone into any research for this game as of yet, so I'm going to withhold a bit of my opinion. But I never like to see games that are just throwaway games just for the sake of, you know, just for the sake of themselves. I mean, if you have a good time with a game and if it's, you know, if it's flipping a coin and it's that's fun for you, by all means, you know, God bless. But if it if it's claims to be a game... And it's just a gimmick, and that's all it does. Then, it, in some ways, it hurts the industry a little bit because people who don't know any better invest into it, thinking this is what hobby board gaming is, and then they get nothing back from it other than, oh, that was interesting, I guess, and they don't come back. Yeah. So, I guess that makes it sound bad, but. Like I, I said, I haven't I haven't researched it. I haven't jumped into this yet, so it could have a lot more to that. I'm just always a little cautious when the game is all gimmick and no game. If this is the case, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Uh, I think 
let me just say let me just say from right from the start from your description it doesn't seem to be a suburbia just saying <laughs> just throwing it out there it doesn't quite reach a suburbia level. no i think it's a cards against humanity with cats i think that's what we're dealing with <laughs> okay which that alone that tagline might sell it right there i don't know mm. to a lot of people not us but not us <laughs> All right, what actual real game are you interested in? <laughs> well, an actual game that I'm really interested in, and I and I have to uh, blame uh, our you know our leader for this, Tom Vassell, Arcadia Quest. Now, this was another Kickstarter game that I had seen from Cool Mini or not, and you know it's once again when I had seen this, you know, and you see a lot of these Kickstarter games, and it's typically about miniatures and you look at the page and you're like, Oh, miniatures. Oh, they're cute. Oh, more miniatures. And Oh, there's kind of cute, but there's so many miniatures to it. And it seems to be the entire gameplay is just miniatures. And I had a chance to watch Tom Vassell's, you know, dice towers review of this game. And it seems to have a lot more than just, you know, moving a bunch of miniatures on a map. It is a dungeon crawl. And they have NPCs, non-player characters, that kind of come into effect. And you're able to upgrade the characters, and you're able to play against other players as, you know, you're playing against the game. So you can actually, you know, knock at other players. They get killed. They get penalties. You can upgrade your characters from game to game. So you'll get equipment. You'll get special abilities you can take on when you play the next the next levels. So... Seems to be a lot of fun. It's high-quality miniatures. It's got a great company backing it. And it's something that now I'm really itching to buy now, which is scary because there's a lot of miniatures to it. But it actually does seem to have the gameplay to back up the high-cost level for this. Yeah, I heard Vassal talking about this a few months ago. Um, and his initial description sounded interesting, but the ongoing enthusiasm about this game yes and then i saw the actual game once it came out and i've seen all the promos that came out with it i've seen the miniatures and then slowly but surely i was like man now i have to own it <laughs> um it's got a it's kind of got like a you know a cartoony chibi kind of super dungeon explorer type of look but it seems to be a lot more refined and it plays more like a dungeon crawl this game was actually on Miniature Market for their deal of the day. It was like 50% off at some point. And it had to be like 9 o'clock in the morning or something. I just checked my phone. And I was like, oh, cool. I should probably go get that. And it was already sold out. <laughs> it's like, Yeah, that sucked. I would have totally bought that. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this looks like to be like a lot of fun and actually has the, uh, you know, the roots to it to be a really good game. All right. So that's everything from our Acquisition Disorder Corner. Hey, kickers, welcome back. Just like I promised on Kicking the Habit, we're back on BGA. This episode, we're going to talk about Hoyuk, Anatolia, the expansion for the base game by Mage Company. They're looking for a pledge goal of $8,000, and the campaign is already funded, so this game will get to you. It's done by a great company that produces high-quality Kickstarter projects, so not to worry. Now, let's talk about the gameplay. Now, if you played Huyuk, it's basically a bit of a Euro game in which you're building up a civilization. Very simple, very light. Everyone can jump in. It allows for a lot of different skill levels. The rulebook 
has some questionable translations, so you might want to take a look at some videos or some gameplay reviews just to see how the gameplay plays out, because otherwise there's some tricky things there. Now, beyond the rulebook, which is really the only stumbling point to this game, it's a very light, simple, fast civilization building game. Now, the expansion adds three different new final features, so you'll be able to build artifacts, build Valley Fest tokens and water supply. Now, I have to say, I love expansions, and sometimes the expansions add a little something, sometimes they add a lot. This expansion actually adds a lot to the game. The original game went a little bit too long. This expansion allows the game to end earlier by whoever is the person who completes two of these end goals. Plus, it allows the map to come into play. Now, other than just having the squares on the map, it actually has a water feature that will come into play if you're able to build the water supply system. In addition to that, the cards, which have this beautiful artwork on them, usually don't come into play either, but the Valley Fest brings those into play, so I really like to see that. Hoyuk has produced high-quality components. Anatolia will be at that same quality, if not higher. It has a really good, rich story to tell. It plays fast, it plays simple. I'm gonna say for Hoyuk, Anatolia the Expansion, kick it off. If you like the base game, the expansion is an absolute must. It's gonna make this game so much better. All right, so at the table this week, uh, the first game on my list, and this is a game that I picked up uh, relatively recently because it is one that uh, Smirk and Dagger Games has sent to us two years in a row um, as a donation for our Extra Life campaign. So I wanted to pick it up and take a look at it. It was one that always interested me, and it was it's called Sutaku, and it's it's a presser luck game. But unlike the usual press your luck game where you roll a bunch of dice and count them up, you are rolling dice and stacking them up. So uh, that alone always was kind of interesting because it's kind of got this Jenga aspect to it. Um, but the game itself mechanically is more or less identical to any of the other press your luck games you've ever seen. Uh, you can play it solo. You can play it with, I think, up to five players. Um, and because it's a Smirk and Dagger game, it does come with a deck of cards that allows you to play variations uh, where you can draw cards and make it harder for your opponents to complete what they're trying to do during their turn. And I'm not sure if I like that or not. It was kind of a funny little twist on the game when we were playing it, but at the same time, it kind of ruins the <laughs> ruins the pleasure of a Press Your Luck game. Um, on its own. So it depends on, I, I guess it depends on if you are used to playing Press Your Luck games or if you're just playing a game with some friends. And it also depends on if you like that smirk and dagger um, mess with your neighbor aspect. So <laughs> some of us like that, some of us don't. It's, you know, it's all relative. Um, the game itself involves, there are 12 dice, you roll three at a time. They are numbered one to six, but in Japanese. Uh, there's a nice easy card that shows you what the symbols mean, uh, if you don't 
read Japanese. Um, I, I actually happened to take Japanese in college, so I can read the dice, and I was very excited about that. Um, but the the goal is you roll three dice, you have to stack two at a time. So if you can't stack two at a time, you bust and lose that turn. Uh, there's only going to be five turns per player, so there's five rounds total. So if you bust, you don't get points that turn. The goal is to stack your dice up as high as you can, and every time you roll, you have to either get the same number or the next highest number. So if the first round you roll two ones and a two, and you stack your two ones, the next round you have to roll ones or higher. And the goal is to get as high as you can. And for scoring each turn, you're going to multiply the number of dice in your stack by the highest number you have. And there's a few bonuses you can get. If you successfully continue your stack when you're at five or six, you get big bonuses, like 50 and 100 points. Um, if you are using the mess with your neighbor cards, there are ways to get other bonuses. If you manage to stack all 12 dice, which, based on what I've attempted so far in the game, is probably impossible, you get 200 bonus points. And the rulebook even says if you pull this off, you basically just win the game. Um, there's there's not a whole lot anybody else can do. The average score we saw after five rounds was around 200 to 250 points. So if you get 200 points plus whatever the score is for that stack, you, you're basically done. But it's it's your pretty typical press-your-luck game. You can play it solo, so it's an interesting one for me. Um, it comes with a score sheet, which is actually pretty cool because a lot of these games don't. And the the theme of it is fun. There's actually a little story on the back of the rulebook that talks about Sutaku and the stonecutters and the whole story of actually pressing your luck, this folklore story from Japan. It all kind of fits really well. And the game itself, if you don't play with those cards, is very prototypical press your luck. It's not smirk and dagger. And then you can bring those cards in if you want and make it smirk and dagger. Uh, to me, it's just fun because you're stacking dice and it, it adds an extra element to the, the typical press your luck style of game. Is that a new thing for us? Uh, it makes it a smirk and dagger? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing the game and I was wondering, like, where's the uh, part where I get really, really, really mad at everybody? <laughs> where's the part where I uh, mess with my wife so much that she wants to get up and walk away? <laughs> this isn't a smirk and dagger game. And then uh, I see the cards and the variant rules and I'm like, ah, oh, there it is. So, But the funny thing is, is smirk and dagger, the company and the people who work there are such nice people, too. Yes. And they make the most cutthroat games, and they're just like the nicest people. They'll talk to you and sit down, like, here, play my games. Here, take a game home. And you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but like even the rules for those cards, they're kind of tongue-in-cheek. They're like, you know, what fun is a game if you're not stabbing your partner in the back? <laughs> like, <laughs> Wink, wink. It's just good fun. The cards are completely optional. They do actually add a lot of elements to the game that make it much more unique than a typical uh, press your luck game so i think they're a really important element of the game but i also think they're the cards in a game like this are something that not everybody's going to enjoy so it's, it's up to you whether you want to use them um but either way it's a fun game it it's not so significantly different than other press your luck games i have like dungeon roll or zombie dice that i think you need to own it independently but if you don't already own one of those games this is a great one to pick up um, it's definitely a play. It's a borderline buy based on what you want. So a game I got a chance to play thanks to my gaming buddy Chris was Paperback. Now, this game is kind of 
flown beneath the radar a little bit. It was illustrated by Ryan Goldsberry, and the designer is Tim Fowers. Now, this is a self-published game, so it might be something that you may not have heard about or maybe you heard on the outskirts because this game has had a lot of good critical buzz, but it hasn't had the wide distribution that it has a lot of play as of yet. Now, Paperback is a deck builder that meets kind of Scrabble. So now for me personally, it's a little concerning because I have family members who are just Scrabble experts that we no longer play Scrabble with because they're just too good. So, you know, um, I was a little bit apprehensive of getting into paperback because of that, because, you know, if you know a lot of these small two-letter or three-letter words, or if you know, you know, what words with the Q, but without the U kind of work together for the most points, you're kind of done at the very start. And that's kind of hard as a gamer to play through a, a you know, two, three-hour game and just never have a chance to start with. Paperback is a little different here. So it has a bit of a, I don't know if you would say a Dominion type of aspect to it, because at the start of the game, you're going to get just the typical starting hand like you do in every game. So you're going to get the letters that you see everywhere. And pretty much like if you ever watch Wheel of Fortune and they at the final puzzle, they give you the L, the N, the R, and so forth and so on. That's pretty much what you're starting with here, but you're also getting a number of wild cards. Now, I mentioned the artist because this artwork is really interesting, nice artwork, and it has this kind of, you know, 1940s, 1930s type of, you know, callback to the early novels, and it's it's an interesting look for game. Now, the gameplay itself, the way it sets up is, as I said, you'll have a starting hand of cards, which you'll shuffle up, and then you'll have the wild cards. So you'll play a word. Now, using those wild cards are helpful, but they don't score you any additional money in this game. So you might have an S, T, and an A, and then have a wild card, so you can play stay. Now, what's a little different about this game is that if you do get stuck and you're not sure what to do, you can call for a bounty. So you can put out your cards and say, look, guys, I don't know. I have these. I have a Z, a W, and a Q here. And I'm not really sure what to do with this. And then somebody else can help you. Anyone actually at the table can offer suggestions. And if you take one of their suggestions, they get a little wooden cube, which counts as one money that they can spend at any time during the game. Now, in addition to that, there is a stack of cards, which you're going to be trying to go through as quickly as possible because that will end the game. And they'll, that little stack has vowels, so it starts off with an O. So beyond the cards that you have in your hand, which usually includes a wild card, you'll also be able to use the stack that's amongst the other letters which you can purchase. So you'll be able to use that O in a word, even though you don't have that card in your hand. Now, you'll see that stack of four cards is also on top of a card on top that says how many letters you need to build a word in order for you to get that card and move down to the next level. So it starts with an O, and then at the end, there's actually a space. So if you can create two words, you'll be able to get that bonus. But once again, it starts with seven, then eight, then nine, and ten, so forth. So it becomes a little bit challenging as it goes to end the game. So if you're able to empty that stack of letters that everyone can use, kind of like Texas Hold'em, that works. If you can also run out of the two stacks of 
let's say, um, victory point cards. Now, these victory point cards, like in Dominion, like if you pick up the Providence Providences, they usually kind of muddle up your deck. They're worth victory points, but they can't be used. Well, these cards, which are these covers from these novels that this paperback writer is writing, um, great, once again, great artwork. You'll be able to purchase those. They're very expensive, but they also count as a wild card in your hand. So now you have the starting wild cards. You have the wild card victory points. You have that set of letters that everyone can pull from, the vowels. And then you'll purchase cards in the game. Now, the artwork is nice. It's good graphic design, very colorful. You'll be able to purchase single letters. And there's also double letters. So there'll be an NT that's together. So sometimes you can use that to end a word or an ed and that also helps you know to kind of finish off a word towards the end the more expensive the letter is so you have the u the x and the z um they're worth more money if you can put together a word but once again they're expensive to get to start with now if that was it as far as a game you would have a decent game and it would be something that would be worth playing but they add an additional step to this which is a lot of the letters in the setup here I think beyond the double letters that come into play, have a special ability. So some of the special abilities are, will allow you to trash other cards. Some of the cards will allow you to gain extra money for wild cards. Some will score you additional money if you're able to use all the cards in your hand. So sometimes you don't want to buy the letters just based upon you know the, the money value, but you want to buy them based upon the special ability. So... A very interesting dynamic game here, and something that might bridge the gap and bring Scrabble players over to hobby board games. This game, I've heard a few reviews of it, and I really wish I'd played it, because I love, love, love word games. Uh, Scrabble is actually one of my favorite games, and oh, it's... We cannot play together, then, because you're too good. <laughs> I might you're be... one of those people. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> I have so much fun with Scrabble, but it's one of those games where you know if you're good, it's because you've memorized all these words and spent all this time learning all these different elements of it, and it just pisses everybody else off. <laughs> um, I very much enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So, but a board game where that's not, you know, those elements don't necessarily make it so other people can't compete uh, is that much better. So, sure. I am very excited to try paperback um, at some point. Yeah, it, the opportunity to have the special abilities on the card, the opportunity to call bounty, which honestly, you know, I feel like I, I have a good, you know, good handle on vocabulary. But nonetheless, sometimes you look at the letters and your mind just goes blank and you really do need some help. So just to lay down those cards and get a word out there and get some money in your hand is such a big help. Now, the game has a number of different play modes with it, so it's not just the one I stated. That's the main play mode. There's a cooperative play mode in this game, too. And let me also talk about the box here, too, because I've been bashing a lot of games just because, you know, you get the box and all the game components fit in, like, one-fifth of the box, and then the rest of the box is just taking up space. Paperback does an excellent job here. The box, when you put the cover on top of it, you could actually put it on your shelf, and it looks like a it looks like a number of books kind of squeezed together. So it almost looks like an actual book, which is great. And then inside, it has um, dividers for the different the different card types. So 
like Dominion, where you kind of like you have to have all these different sections. It actually organizes. It's very nice. There's no wasted space in the box. It, it has a little space probably for maybe an expansion later on. And uh, I, 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 I absolutely positively did not think I was going to like this game at all and was a little bit afraid of it because, like I said, there are Scrabble players like you, Anthony, who just make it horrible for the rest of us. And uh, But we have fun! Yeah. Uh, Scrabble players. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I would play this again, and I had fun. And, and actually, um, despite the fact that my mind went blank several times and it was my first time playing, I came into second place. And it was because of my deck building experience and knowledge about when to trash and when to kind of, you know, draw up on your hands. So, you know, hobby board gamers, do not give up hope. You can have a chance against your Scrabble friends and actually play a good game. This is a buy. This game is actually a buy. It's a low price level. It is um, suburbia worthy. We've apparently revised our ranking system this week. <laughs> well, just for this episode. Don't honest. tell Drew and Daniel. <laughs> Let's see if they catch on. <laughs> well, no, if they're listening. There you go. If they're not talking about suburbia or suburbia not worthy next week. <laughs> well, this game is suburbia worthy. <laughs> and that's paperback. So check it out. If you can find it, grab a copy. You will not be disappointed. Great graphic design. Great artwork. Nice interplay. Like I said, you, you don't feel like you're, you know, you're choking because you can't pull out a big word. So great game. Hear ye, hear ye. The Board Gamers Anonymous Court is now in session. All judgments made by the Board Gamers Anonymous Court are binding. Your get out of free jail card is not valid here. As we approach the big game, and typically when we're talking about our podcast, when we talk about big game, usually it's tabletop game, and especially on episode 55, it's always suburbia. But nonetheless, there are other games in the world. Now, you know, that's fine. They, other people can have their games. So the other game that's going on, especially in the U.S., is the Super Bowl. The Super Go Seahawks! <laughs> and we have a Seahawk fan. I don't Go know Seahawks. where he is, but he sees around here, right? Go Seahawks. <laughs> So, as I was saying, okay, I think we're okay. All right, cool. Go Seahawks. <laughs> See, that's the one thing you don't know. If you don't know about football, the Seahawks fans are very, very, very loud fans. They, they, <laughs> they literally register on the Richter scale when they have a, a game over there. But um, so there was. There turned out in the the world of gaming that we're going to expand for at least this episode to football gaming. There was an AFC playoff game, and there was a certain New England Patriots they were playing during this game. And this New England Patriots, you know, have a tradition of, let's call it, I don't know, maybe cheating? <laughs> so they have a, a little bit of tradition of cheating, and, uh, you know, Bill Belichick, their coach, has been caught for many things over the years, including what they call Spygate, which was they were filming other players and other team signals in order to kind of decipher those and get a tactical advantage, which made us think about, you know, cheating in our gaming. And in particular, recently in this playoff game that I was talking about, there was an interesting situation that occurred. And what occurred was, you know, when you play football, you play with a fully inflated ball. Now, 
if that ball was slightly deflated, it would give you a you know an easier grip. And it turned out that the New England Patriots, somebody, we don't know who, and we're not casting dispersions, but somebody in their organization actually went ahead and they deflated the balls a little bit. And it's kind of a big thing. And the NFL is up in arms about it. And the players on the New England Patriots are like, well, you know, it's just part of the game. We don't really see much of a problem to it. It's not a big deal. Although the Indianapolis Colts, who lost that game by a great margin, are obviously don't feel the same way about that. So when it comes to gaming, when is it actually gaming the game and when is it cheating at the game? So that's what we're going to talk about with this week's feature review. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing because there's a lot of angles to this. Um, you know, from the from the cold side of things, they got destroyed in this game. Uh, inflating, deflating throwing a completely different kind of ball, using a bat to hit the ball. It doesn't matter. They lost that game <laughs> legitimately fair and square. I don't know about that. I mean, you could say that if a team went to the to the extent of actually cheating, you know, maybe they maybe they felt that they couldn't win the game without the cheating. It's true. I mean, it it makes you wonder because the Patriots were a favorite in this game. The last time they played the Colts in in, in New England, they destroyed them. Sure. Um, why did they feel they needed to do this? But in terms of board games, it's something that comes up all the time because board games are so player-dependent. There's so much information that's player-reported. There's so many situations in which you say what your score is and you place your cards and you put your pieces out. Um, what's cheating? What's not? What's stretching the game? What's not okay? There's so many gray lines in board games uh, you know, even in sports, they try to make it as black and white as possible. And in our hobby, it's not nearly that black and white. So we wanted to talk about a little bit of kind of the gray area and when it crosses over and when it's okay, when it's not, and when you're going to get caught and when it matters if you get caught. So let's start off. Now, when you sit down to play a game, there are a lot of things that come into play here. Now, in particular, we've all had the opportunity to know about games like you're listening to the podcast right now we're talking about games so you're getting some information about a game or maybe a friend says hey i got this great game why don't we all sit down and play it this coming week i think it'd be a lot of fun and like all right that sounds great we should do that we should sit down and play the game i'm going to personally go on board game geek and find out some information about this game because Sometimes, you know, these games are very long and the rule books are pretty, you know, heavy. So I want to get some information so I'm not holding back everyone from playing the game. But nonetheless, sometimes that gives me information about winning strategies or certain metas about a game. And when I come to play the game with a group of people, maybe I have an unfair advantage about, you know, starting that game up. And maybe that leads me to victory. So I don't know, Anthony, what do you think? Is that cheating? It's such a full, it's just, it's such a fine line. It's funny because it's, and this has come up multiple times because let's say you're playing a game for the first time and you happen to be playing against somebody who's played it two or three times. They have an automatic advantage, right? They've played the game before. They know how it works. They're probably going to win. Um, and you, you kind of expect that. If you get upset about it, you know, it's fine. But as long as they're, willing to work with you and kind of help you learn the game it's fine 
Um, and then there's the situations in which somebody who knows the game and maybe teaching it, maybe is not, doesn't help you at all and uses that information they have from having previously played it to destroy you. Um, or maybe not tell you all the rules <laughs> to the game because for whatever reason, that's the advantage that they want to have. This happens all the time as well, and it's very frustrating, but you know it's legitimate. Um, when does it cross over to the line of cheating if they, let's say you're all new players, you're all learning a new game, and one of those players goes online and pulls off all the strategies on Board Game Geek, and none of you have that? Um, to me, it's all about the spirit of the game. You know, if somebody's played it and somebody hasn't, the assumption is the person who's played it has an advantage. If neither of you have played it and one of you goes and gets information that the other one doesn't have, then the spirit of the game, the spirit of the tabletop says that you would share that information because you're both learning together. Sure. If you don't share that information, you have an advantage that is unfair because the other player doesn't know you have that advantage. Hmm. Um, it's like in, in the courtroom. No lawyer has information the other one doesn't because that's unfair. If new information comes out during the case, you know, during a case, the they'll slow things down. They'll give both lawyers opportunities to review it, and then they'll continue. With a board game, I feel like it's fair to have the similar situation. If you go out and spend a bunch of time learning about the game, share with your fellow players what you learned if you're all learning together. Mm. Um, give everybody a fair chance. It's, you know, if you happen to listen to a podcast and pick up a couple strategies, fine. It's not like you didn't do it on purpose. But if you're trying to destroy somebody, then maybe you are... Uh, overstepping the bounds. So I think as far as like our judgment is concerned on, on at least on a couple of these issues that we talked about. So if someone is teaching you the game, then everyone at the table can assume that they have, at least when it comes to winning the game. And remember playing games are not about winning, right? At least not at, you know, at, at, you know, at all costs, you want to enjoy the game. You want to have a good time with friends. You want to try to play out a certain strategy, but if someone's teaching the game, it's fair to say there's a certain asterisk about the game and that, you know, we understand that they're going to have an advantage, but not a purposeful advantage. And hopefully we have, or you have a good teacher who's going to not just teach you the rules, but hopefully clue you in on some of the strategies that might, you know, lead you to victory or at the very least have a good time in the game. So we wouldn't say that that would be cheating, right? The judgment on that is not cheating, right? No, no. It might maybe you can frown on a little bit, like try to help everybody out. But if you win a game because you know it better than everybody else, that's fine. Everybody expects yeah. that. And sometimes, you know, not everyone is a great teacher of teaching a game. I mean, that's a specialized skill. I mean, hopefully you're a good and you're you know, you're a good sport, but teaching a game is, you know, especially some of those heavy Euro games, it's very easy to forget rules. It's sometimes very hard to teach new players about the different mechanics. So I think that's understandable. Now, the other part, what you were saying is, if you're sitting down with a bunch of gamers and you went online to research winning strategies, and whether it's intentional or non-intentional, if you employ those strategies, that's more of the gray area and it leans towards probably being a little bit of cheating because, you know, if everyone has that uh, initial assumption or if that's the conversation of like, hey, we're all playing this game for the first time, and you know something that other people don't know, like some games are broken. Some games do have winning strategies. 
And if you employ that in order just to win and crush the other players without letting them know, I guess that could be a problem there. That could be cheating. Yeah, I mean, if you know, let's let, you know, say, for example, which deck in a game is going to be the most advantageous based on a current scenario, because you looked it up, (laughs) and then that's the one you pick, or you go to the A Few Acres of Snow forum and figure out how to break that game. Sure. Um, You know, there are ways to break certain games, and if people have already solved it and you go look that up before the game, you have a serious advantage. and it. Not a, whether people know or not, it ruins the game for other people. So it's not it's not full blown cheating per se. You're just trying to get it. people do research when they're doing something competitively. But if it's not competitive, why are you being so competitive? Honestly, sure. <laughs> and I, I think the thing with that too is, I, I I think there's a certain agreed upon whether it's verbalized or not that we're all coming to the game. You know in a certain status, a certain place. And, you know, we want to enrich everyone's gameplay. And if you're there to win, if it's a tournament or something, then maybe there's something different. But nonetheless, we're, we're coming together to play together. I think that's the important thing. Absolutely. Yep. And I know this actually came up at one point because I know when we sat down to play um, Cyclades, for me doing the research in order to teach the game and, and to be able to present it on the podcast... I heard about the Pegasus card being a little bit overpowered, at least in the base game. And that was some information that I could just held to myself and waited for that card. But when I was, after I explained all the rules to the game, I said, hey guys, let me just let you know, there are certain cards that do certain things that you may want to keep an eye out for, including the Pegasus card that can be very powerful, if not overpowered in this game. So just to let you know. And it turned out to be very powerful, and uh, Daniel actually used it in a winning game move, but everyone knew at the table about that card coming into the game. <laughs> that was a funny one, too, though, because if you listen to his review of Cyclades, he points out that being a problem. Yeah. But you told him it was going to happen. So I told it, him. It's not like it was... None of us were surprised when it happened. We're like, oh, Pegasus. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's there's certain... A certain joy and like you know explains other players like hey look this card does that and this strategy does that because I think we all want to know that right don't don't you want to know about the really cool interesting things about a game and you know it's kind of fun to be able to share that information don't keep it to yourself you know share yeah, that's the fun part of the game you know yeah. and if you're all playing for the first time and one of you figures the game out first that's not the same thing uh, even if it can make someone just as mad uh, relic runners. Um, it happens, but it's it nobody's happens. fault. It's just you. Someone figured it out faster than everybody else. It happens. Yeah, and I think uh, Drew has a really good way to kind of combat this too, especially when the first time you're playing a game. Drew likes to talk out his moves or his at least his internal monologue about what he's thinking of doing, and I think that's a really fair and interesting way to kind of engage you know other players in a very fair type of way because. You know, you're letting them know, like, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? And honestly, most gamers are good enough to say, hey, you may not want to go there. You may not want to take that piece or make that move because it's just going to crush you, you know. And if you can discuss that, if, if you're discussing your ideas, it allows people to kind of offer information that they may have. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's occasionally I forget what he's doing and I'm like, what are you talking about? But it is very helpful. 
um, when we're all playing a game together for the first time or about to review it, mm-hmm. hear what what's going through his head. It's very, very true. So that is the one, you know, like I said, the initial step, if you're teaching a game, we're going to say that's that's fair. If you've got some information or some special strategies about the win the game, you should share that because that leans on the cheating side. So, Anthony, you're sitting you're sitting down. They have taught the game. People have shared their strategy. And now you're playing the game. And you know what? It's kind of getting on your nerves a little bit that somebody is running away with this game and nobody is stopping them. Is it cheating to inform the other players like, hey, you know, if he converts those goods at the end of the round, he's going to have, you know, he's going to run away with the game. You guys need to stop him. Is, is that cheating? This is a tough one because I don't necessarily think it's cheating. Um, but it really depends on the game a lot. <laughs> there are certain games in which if you're pairing up with other people, for example, then, of course, you're going to talk to that person about strategy, uh, whereas you wouldn't necessarily share it with other teams. Um, there are other games where maybe you have no control over this person across the table from you, like in a game like Seven Wonders, and you see somebody across the table in a five- or six-player game who's getting way ahead and the players next to them keep funneling those technology cards to them is it cheating to tell them not to do that i don't think so i don't <laughs> okay. honestly i don't think so i feel like mentioning just kind of offhandedly like they have a lot of technology maybe the people next to them should stop giving it to them <laughs> maybe they should build their wonders um i feel like that's a part of a lot of games and really the only person at the table that annoys is the person that's being targeted but If you're ahead in a game like that, it makes sense. Yeah, I think a great example of this was when we talked about playing Revolution and we played with the Anarchy Edition. I was running away with that game. I just had gotten some lucky spots and some good strategy. And Drew was like, hey, Chris is running away with this game. We need to stop him. And I think the other players kind of felt bad about that, like as as if that was cheating because... It didn't feel right, you know, that you would point out because everyone is playing for themselves. And the other players were like, they were on board, but they didn't want to say outwardly, like, you know, to kind of build a strategy between the three of them to stop me. Now, they kind of somewhat agreed without verbalizing it broadly. Um, And I actually did end up winning the game, but I did not blame them because, you know, Sometimes you are playing games, and as you were saying, like Seven Wonders is one of those masquerades, another one those games where there's a lot of people, and for whatever reason, you can't tactically do something to stop them. Um, I, had, I was playing a game recently that was an area control game, and someone was scoring five points every round. And I, and I said to the player who was closest to them, I said, you know, I just want you to know that if you don't do something, they're just going to continue to run away with the game. And unfortunately, they didn't do anything, and that person did run away with the game, and it kind of felt bad, and I hate to do that. And I really don't like that about games where you have to, you know, depend on other players to stop that runaway leader because otherwise the game just becomes less fun. But at the same time, it never feels great to kind of point out someone and say, hey, let's all jump him. So... It's it's a bit challenging either way you go on that. But I would agree, Anthony. It's not cheating. Everyone should be aware of who's leading and what they're doing and how to stop them. 
And I guess, unfortunately, it's just one of those things where sometimes you got to point it out, even though you really don't want to, because, you know, if someone's winning, you know, it's good, good for them. Yeah, definitely. It's, I agree with you. It's something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable when you have to say it. Uh, so I think it depends on the game. But in certain games, it makes sense. Certain ones, it doesn't. It's definitely dependent on the situation. Sure. All right. So someone's not running away with the game, but you know what? When you sat down to play the game, it turns out that one of the players is, let's say, a spouse or a sibling or just somebody you don't know, but that other player knows. So is it cheating to have someone at the table with you playing a game that is like you're so super close to that maybe there's an you know unfair advantage there? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. Um, it's, I remember, whenever this comes up, I remember back to the uh, Dixit tournament that we had at Myriad Games a couple years ago. And there were, a, you know, two or three couples amongst the people who would attend the store regularly. And I remember when they announced this, we all were thinking, okay, how do we ensure that these people don't play the game together because they're going to destroy everybody? Um they had, you know, they have the advantage of knowing each other a little bit better than everybody else. It ended up not being an issue at all, and there's a couple of reasons why. Um, first, as someone who's been married for almost six years, I can tell you that your spouse is almost certainly going to go after you more than anybody else at the table. <laughs> but by far, uh, my wife would gladly destroy me at a board game uh, before a stranger because she knows me. And she knows I'm not going to get upset. Um, at the same time, I don't think there's that implicit advantage of understanding what they're thinking as much as everybody thinks. So that's it doesn't really come into play quite as much as you might expect, uh, especially because people are trying to outthink each other and think outside the box a little bit in, in games like that. Uh, so I haven't really seen that advantage come into play as much. And honestly, it seems to backfire more often than it. Then it works. Mm. I guess it, it's de it depends on the game. So if you are playing a game where it's a competitive game, you know, if everyone is a fair player, they're going to treat everyone in a fair fashion. And as you said, Anthony, I've seen games where a spouse is, you know, who usually either doesn't normally play games or doesn't normally play with the group decides to play with the group. And usually that spouse feels more comfortable with attacking their spouse than anybody else in the game. So sometimes you actually have a tactical advantage by having them play. But there can be a situation. I think that was some of the Dixit situation because I played Dixit with family and friends where the fact that I know the people that are playing that game in particular, like apples to apples and such, you know their sense of humor, you know what they like, you know what they dislike – you can play to their to them directly. Like Dixit is one of those special situations where if one player matches what your clue was for that card, then you get the points, they get the points, but nobody else does. But I guess beyond those types of, you know, specific type of party games, I guess, you know, as long as everyone's fair, it's not cheating because you want to invite everyone to the table and you just got to play along with it. You got to roll with it. All right, so how about this? So now this situation tends to come up in tournaments, but could just come up in regular gameplay with, you know, a group of friends. What about when you're playing a game that 
either includes a meta of some level. What if somebody goes out and just buys a killer magic deck, a killer dice magic, dice masters cards, or, you know, those special dice, you know, the, the killer meta that's kind of doing it for them, or brings in certain promos that you could only get in those certain situations that you couldn't normally buy at the store. Is that cheating to bring those, you know, you know, kind of ringers into a game? No, I don't I don't feel like this is cheating so much. Um, it's a tricky one, though, because it is a pay-to... Not a pay-to-win, because uh, there are different scales. You know, you know, obviously, you pay a ton of money and go and play against a casual player at the game store, you're probably going to win. But if you're in a tournament, if you're playing with other competitive players and you pay more money than them, it doesn't necessarily gonna mean you're going to win. It just increases your chances. Uh, the reason it's not cheating is that those players know that you're doing that. Um, and if you play a game like this and you don't spend as much money as you technically could, you always know that somebody else could spend more than you. Um, really it's, it's kind of a risk reward system. Like, you know, getting into a game like this, that there's a risk other players will outspend you and have better cards than you and better materials than you and possibly destroy you because they've invested more of their income into this, uh, hobby than you have. I don't think it's cheating per se. It just creates a system that isn't necessarily fun for people who can't afford it. Yeah, it's one of those challenging factors where it's since it's open and you know going into the game that they have some things that might be at least, let's say, unkind <laughs> to bring into a game. So, you know, if it's a tournament situation, you know, I guess it's one of those situations where ideally you shouldn't you probably shouldn't but you know one you know that tournament at atmosphere where people are bringing things you know out of left field as long as the tournament organizer agrees in advance that those certain materials are you know legitimate for that type of gameplay for that type of tournament and everyone knows that in advance and everyone could at least at least have a certain amount of time to be able to purchase or bring those into the game i guess that's fine when you're playing a casual game with friends, once again, it's completely fine to bring out your high-quality, expensive components because you bought them to play them. So, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you do that? But just keep in mind that, like, you know, like every kindergartner knows, it's nice to share. <laughs> so sometimes you want to share some of those components because you may win the game, but you may lose some friends. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, so th those are some of the situations in which you might feel that it is a uh, fine line between cheating and or gaming. Um, you know, on the versus side of things, it really, it seems like it comes down to the game, it comes down to the situation and the players. Uh, there's never really a clear black or white on these things. Obviously, if it's straight up cheating, it's cheating. If someone's got cards up their sleeve. But there are a lot of situations where it's a little more gray, and... It's always going to be like that. Uh, and the goal, of course, is to have fun and to enjoy your time at the table with all of your friends and to, uh, you know, uh, kind of have a, a more social experience. So as long as you're having fun and everybody's on the same page, you should be good. And as long as you're not the New England Patriots. <laughs> oh, yeah, because they cheat. <laughs> See? <laughs> you know it's they're going to cheat. It's never fun when it happens to you, though, Anthony, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's, it's like when you see a magician on TV and you're watching the whole time trying to see the, the sleight of hand and how they did it. 
that's how I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl. It's like, there you how, go. what are they doing that's not allowed? Yeah, it's going to happen. Think, and, I, and, and the greater sin here, obviously cheating is never a good thing. And this is a social atmosphere. And you want to bring friends to the table. And you want to bring new people to the table. And gaming creates so many new friends and new experiences that you can share for a lifetime how you were able to pull off this great move and win this game. And it's really those victories where you didn't have an advantage, you went into the game, you pulled off some great tactics and strategy, you got some lucky dice rolls, and you were able to pull out the win. Those are the victories you remember. Those are the games that you can share time and time again. And when you do go out of your way to get an unfair advantage, whether it's cheating or it's you know on the line as far as gaming is concerned, you really have done yourself your fellow game players and our hobby a great disservice because that really, you know, we're, it's a social atmosphere. It's people playing the game. And while it's just a game, it's people, it's relationships you have with each other. And it's very, very important to always respect those relationships above and beyond the games. Absolutely. Yep. Just remember, be suburbia, man. Just be suburbia. If, if you haven't yet looked at the title of this episode, it should mention suburbia at least four times. <laughs> at least, well, no, at least five times because we said episode 11, five times suburbia. There you go. Oh, God, yeah. Man, where am I? Come you started on. this. I did. <laughs> now, don't cheat because there's people listening now. It's not cheating. It's completely forgetting what happened two hours ago. <laughs> All right, then. Yeah. I have an excuse. She's a month old. <laughs> He's exactly one month old today. So Look, I don't know what you're saying. I've met Abigail, and she's total suburbia. So I don't know what your problem <laughs> is, man. She's pretty suburbia. She pretty much is. Yeah. yeah. My son is chaos in the old world. <laughs> God forbid. It's crazy. Still crazy. All right, so that is everything for this week. Episode 55, number 11 times 5. Also known as Suburbia Plus 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 <laughs> Plus Plus. <laughs> However many this pluses I said. Sponsored by Suburbia. <laughs> um, but that is everything for this week. Let's just run it off. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at BGA Podcast. Make sure you connect with us on Facebook. Uh, if you haven't yet, hop on over to iTunes. Give us five stars. Just let us know what you think of the podcast. We definitely love your feedback. Uh, we are on Board Game Geek. We have a guild there, so make sure you join up and uh, connect with us on each of the episodes there. And then BoardGamersAnonymous.com, where all of the show notes are located, and all of the blog posts and everything else we post is up there. Um, and then, of course, the big news this last week, we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash BGA, if you want to connect and uh, kind of join the team and help us out in reaching the next stage of the podcast in 2015. Definitely do that there. But that is everything for this week. This is Anthony. This is Chris. And until next time, be suburbia. Times five. Times five. Times five. <laughs> ah, Ted Allsback. Could you do no wrong? Thus far, no. No, he's good. <laughs> Mad King, Werewolf, and Suburbia. Always be suburbia. Be suburbia. I'm excited for five stars. Obviously, always be yourself, unless you can be suburbia, then always be suburbia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I mean, I think the motto would be suburbia, and then I guess if you can't be suburbia, be yourself. <laughs> it's a good lesson, kids. It's a good lesson for you out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.